Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 29th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Former U.S. Vice President Pence testifies before a grand jury. At least 23 are killed in Russian strikes across Ukraine. The U.S. announces plans to open Latin America migration centers. Thousands rally in support of Israel's judicial overhaul. Iran seizes an oil tanker headed for Texas. Turkey's leader Erdogan cancels a third day of election appearances. The BBC's chairman resigns over Boris Johnson cronyism allegations. A poll finds that public support for the British monarchy is at a historic low. Abortion bans are blocked in Nebraska and South Carolina. And scientists released the first direct image of a supermassive black hole. In our top story, Mike Pence testifies in Trump investigation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, NBC, CNN, and BBC News. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence testified in Washington, D.C. Thursday before a special grand jury as part of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into former President Trump and his actions in the aftermath of the 2020 election. The testimony came hours after a federal appeals court, in a sealed order, rejected Trump's bid to prevent Pence's appearance. Lawyers for both Trump and Pence challenged the subpoena for Pence's testimony earlier this year. Trump's lawyers objected, citing executive privilege concerns, which a judge rejected. However, the judge sided with Pence's claim that he could not be forced to testify about anything related to his role presiding over the Senate's certification of the electoral votes. Pence appeared amid increased security presence at the courthouse and is believed to have arrived around 9 a.m. with two black SUVs and left at 4.30 p.m. Pence wrote several pieces about his interactions with Trump, but Smith's team is particularly interested in the former president's efforts to allegedly block the election certification. Details about Pence's appearance have not been revealed, but his testimony represents a major development in the investigation. It also creates a precedent about the vice president's power and privileges during investigations. Trump was in New Hampshire for a campaign event on Thursday and said, quote, I don't know what he said, but I have a lot of confidence in him when asked about Pence's testimony. Pence may challenge his former boss for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. Thank you, Eric, for sharing the facts of that first story. We're going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a Democratic narrative provided by MSNBC. Trump is in big trouble after failing to block Pence's testimony before the January 6th grand jury. Pence has already opened up about Trump's plot to overturn the 2020 election and how he will reveal much more under oath. Trump may have played it cool regarding Pence's testimony, but he should be very nervous. Conservative Brief gives us a pro-Trump narrative for this story. Trump is being unfairly targeted by the political establishment and the Biden administration. And Jack Smith's special counsel investigation is just another example. A weaponized judiciary is defying all the norms which the media and Democrats pretended to hold so sacredly, and is forcing testimonies unconstitutionally and violating Trump's rights. This investigation, like so many others, is a witch hunt. 
Yeah, you know what? It's just not fair when you do something like breaking the law. All of a sudden, the <laughs> legal people start coming after you. I just don't get That's it. That's some weird, wild stuff. Did you know that? Mr. Johnny Carson, back from the dead. It's a pleasure to see you, sir. I did not know that. What What didn't you know? I, what I, didn't you know? You know? I did not know that. You break the law, and you have to pay the price. You're correct, sir. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. At least 23 are killed in Russian strikes across Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Ukranska Pravda, and New York Post. At least 23 people were killed after Russia launched pre-dawn drone and missile attacks on Ukraine on Friday. Most of the victims came in the central city of Uman, located 134 miles or 250 kilometers south of Kiev, after two missiles struck an apartment building. Ukrainian officials said 21 civilians were killed and 17 people were injured in the city. Ayar Klemenko, Ukraine's acting minister of internal affairs, said that records showed that 109 people were registered as living in the building. He said that 27 of the block's 46 apartments were completely destroyed, adding that 33 nearby cars were also damaged or destroyed. Meanwhile, in the city of Dnipro, a woman and two-year-old daughter were killed in attacks. Another four civilians were reported injured. Valery Zaluzhny, Ukraine's commander-in-chief of its armed forces, said that air defenses destroyed 21 of 23 missiles fired, as well as two drones. Of these, 11 missiles were reportedly shot down over the region of Kyiv. Ruslan Kravchenko, head of the military administration in the Kyiv region, said one child was injured from falling missile debris in the city of Ukranska. Damage was also reported to two floors of an apartment building. The attacks come a day after German publication Bild, citing sources close to Ukraine's secret service, reported that a drone packed with explosives and launched into Russia on Sunday had been an attempt to assassinate Russian President Putin. The drone reportedly intended to target the Rudnevo Industrial Park, where Putin was expected to visit either Sunday or Monday, but it exploded about 12 miles or 19 kilometers away. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story, a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from Pravda. These attacks on Ukrainian civilians are a further demonstration of Russia's terrorism. The international community must stand firm in condemning these actions, as well as increasing the pressure on Russia via sanctions. And TASS has a pro-Russia narrative. Any attacks from Ukraine into the territory of Russia will be met with firm, retaliatory action. This includes strikes on decision-making centers in Kyiv if necessary. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of President of Russia by March 2026. That is, if a drone doesn't get him in the meantime. Well, I think that's the idea. You think that's the, you think that's it? Okay. <laughs> you know the old expression, dodging a bullet. Now it's it's starting to evolve in dodging the drone. In our next story, the U.S. plans to open migrant centers in Latin America and expedite deportations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Los Angeles Times, NBC, Spokesman.com, and Al Jazeera. As the Title 42 COVID restrictions on immigration are set to expire next month, 
the U.S. will establish regional processing centers for migrants in Colombia and Guatemala to reduce arrivals at the southern border. The first processing centers set to open in the coming weeks will be operated by international organizations partnering with the U.S. Migrants will speak to specialists to determine eligibility. If eligible, they may be given parole programs, family reunification, or existing labor pathways. Once Title 42 ends on May 11th, deportations will return to the process under Title 8, which carries with it harsher consequences such as potential criminal prosecution and barring people from reentry for at least five years. U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said, that expedited removal will begin on May 12th for those who cross the border without having first taken the legal pathway to entry. These expulsions will also apply to families crossing the border. As the U.S. worries it won't have the resources to deal with the expected 10,000 border arrivals per day after May 11th, it will have to rely on cooperation from Mexico, which has agreed to continue taking back migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. Spain and Canada will also accept referrals from the processing centers, with officials also announcing programs to allow certain U.S. residents and citizens to apply for family members to be relocated to the U.S. more quickly. Thanks, Eric. We've got a Republican narrative attached to this story, and it's provided by Town Hall. This announcement doesn't show the Biden administration turning a corner on immigration but rather an admission that the government will play the role of human smuggler itself. The president's migrant phone app has already approved a shocking 99% of so-called asylum seekers, so there's no reason to believe Biden will follow through with his promise to deport those who don't follow the rules. And the Democratic narrative comes from the Department of Homeland Security. Biden's Department of Homeland Security has actually removed over 200,000 individuals during last year alone, which is tens of thousands more than the previous year. The Biden administration takes illegal immigration seriously and will continue to implement its tough but compassionate migrant programs as it always has. What was the process like when you were deported? Well, I had to learn English all over again because I forgot it, you know, because once you cross the border, you forget English. It's not like riding a bike, is it? No, no. You need to learn it all from scratch because I just reverted immediately back to Spanish. Yeah, of course you did. Yeah, it's tough. I can. Yeah, I, I, I pick up the accent. See? Thousands rally in support of Israel's judicial overhaul. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Guardian, New York Times, The National Associated Press, and the Times of Israel. Tens of thousands of Israelis demonstrated in Jerusalem on Thursday in support of a contentious judicial overhaul bill spearheaded by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing coalition government that would see the power of the country's highest court considerably downsized. Over 150,000 pro-government Israelis reportedly took to the streets, making the demonstrations the largest right-wing protest in the country in nearly two decades. Protesters came from all over Israel, with settlers living in the occupied West Bank also attending. Highest estimates from local media put the attendance at 200,000 people. Those protesting stem largely from more religious backgrounds, as they seek to minimize Israel's Supreme Court rule in the legal process, with one protester saying, There is no democracy in Israel and that the Supreme Court rules, no matter what slip we put into the ballot box. 
the government's legal overhaul would drastically limit the powers of the country's judiciary and give the government more power in appointing legal officials, which has generated intense controversy and protests across the country in recent months. These most recent pro-government protests come a month after Netanyahu decided to delay the judicial overhaul after weeks of anti-government protests. During said protests, pilots and officers in elite military reserve units threatened not to report for service, and high-tech business leaders and former officials also came out against the changes. Several coalition lawmakers attended the protest. However, Netanyahu did not participate in any of the rallies, instead voicing his support on Twitter saying, I am deeply moved by the amazing support of the national camp, which ascended to Jerusalem in mass this evening. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is a left narrative coming from New Statesman. The judicial overhaul spearheaded by Netanyahu and his most extreme allies shows, despite a legitimate right shift in the electorate, the prime minister has less control over his coalition than once thought. Facing scrutiny over bribery and fraud charges, the only way Netanyahu can maintain his power is by ripping apart Israel's long-standing democratic institutions and criminalizing judicial dissent. We are watching an authoritarian coup unfold in real time. And Jerusalem Post is going to follow that up with a right narrative. Despite the left arguing that these judicial reform plans threaten democracy, the reality is quite the opposite. The self-appointed Israeli Supreme Court has autocratic, unchecked powers that allow it to nullify and rewrite democratically enacted laws and policies based on subjective justifications. Consequently, the move is crucial to curb the court's undemocratic excesses and to protect the rule of law. Middle East Eye brings us a pro-Palestine spin. Though there's much talk from the Israeli left that the country's democracy is under threat, for Palestinians, it has never been a democracy. Apartheid and democracy are mutually exclusive, and the only reason Israelis have protested against the overhaul in the first place is that they want to maintain a system that has oppressed Palestinians for 75 years. In our next story, Iran seizes an oil tanker headed for Texas. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, NBC, Al Jazeera, Reuters, Lloyd's List, and DW. Iran's Navy on Thursday seized a Marshall Islands-flagged oil tanker in international waters in the Gulf of Oman, according to the U.S. Navy, the latest in a series of recent incidents in the conflict-prone Gulf waters. The U.S. Navy identified the oil tanker as the Advantage Suite and accused Tehran of violating international law, demanding the vessel's immediate release, which it said came from Kuwait and had given Houston, Texas, as its destination. Meanwhile, the Iranian army issued a statement Thursday saying the oil tanker was confiscated in the Gulf of Oman after it collided with an Iranian boat earlier, injuring several crew members. The ship was chartered by U.S. oil major Chevron and is owned by a Chinese-registered ship leasing company, according to the International Maritime Organization, or IMO. About one-fifth of the world's oil trade passes through the waters near the Strait of Hormuz, which is bounded by Iran and Oman. The Advantage Suite, a 2012-built Suzmax oil tanker reportedly managed by a Turkish company, left Mina Saud in Kuwait on Tuesday carrying 750,000 barrels of Kuwaiti crude oil. It's at least the fifth commercial vessel seized by Tehran in the past two years, 
the U.S. Navy claims. In November, Iran released two Greek-flagged tankers it confiscated in the Persian Gulf in May, reportedly in response to the U.S. seizure of a vessel carrying Iranian oil. All right, Eric, we've got a Fox News pro-establishment narrative starting off this round of spins. The Iranian regime's seizure of yet another oil tanker while passing through international waters, reinforcing its blatant aggression in the region, is further evidence that Washington's policy of appeasement against Tehran has failed. This latest destabilizing incident should be a wake-up call for the U.S. to finally resume seizing Iranian oil and gas shipments. Tehran Times gives us an establishment-critical narrative. In the incident, the oil tanker collided with an Iranian fishing boat, causing several Iranian crew members to go missing and become injured. Rather than assisting, as required by international maritime law, the tanker attempted to flee. What would the U.S. do if the roles had been reversed? Washington's double standards are limitless. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They think there's a 3.5% chance that the U.S. will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal by 2024. You know, I was waiting for any moment when it started talking about who was uh, manning the ship. Then the ship was manned by Billy Bob and Joe Tinichi of Wyop, <laughs> Texas. You know, and they were just drunk, <laughs> drunk boating through. They uh, were just on a bill fishing tournament or a bill, a bill fishing excursion. And they were filming a YouTube the... video for you. You, you want to see some good bass fishing? Right. You got to go over here. And the, they were trying the to get a prize marlin. That's all they were trying <laughs> to do. Right. We're just trying to get a lot of likes and reposts <laughs> on our YouTube channel. Thank you very Hell much. Yeah. Eight more. What Billy Bob wants out of that fishing boat? <laughs> Erdogan cancels a third day of election appearances. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Al Jazeera, France 24, CNN, and NBC. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is seeking a third presidential term in the country's May 14th election, canceled his election appearances for a third day Friday after falling ill, reportedly from a gastrointestinal infection. He had been due to appear at a bridge opening and a political rally in the southern city of Adana, but his schedule changed to show he would attend the opening ceremony via video link. Erdogan got sick live on TV on Tuesday evening prompting him to interrupt his busy campaign schedule. Since then, he has been trying to adjust by attending events via video link, including a joint appearance with Russia's Vladimir Putin at a video conference on Thursday to inaugurate a nuclear power plant. Officials sought to assuage concerns over Erdogan's health ahead of next month's elections, as rumors spread online that he was critically ill in hospital after having suffered a heart attack. Recent polls showed a slight lead for his main challenger, center-left opposition leader Kemal Kilik Daraglu, amid an economic downturn and the February earthquake that killed over 50,000 people. Erdogan has ruled Turkey for two decades, first as prime minister and as president since 2014. He also underwent intestinal surgery in 2011. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Al Monitor. Erdogan has now canceled three days of campaign events as the crucial elections are near, and he is almost certainly downplaying the severity of his illness. Despite falling ill during a TV interview, no cameras were on the president as the moment unfolded, leading to reasonable suspicion of a heart attack or another more severe health episode. He looked quite ill in his online appearances, 
adding more fuel to the speculation that he is too ill to serve. And the Daily Sabah has a narrative B. Misinformation is spreading like wildfire as rumor mongers used social media to lie about President Erdogan's health. Political opportunists are using his stomach illness to lie and gain an advantage in the upcoming elections. Despite all the false rumors, President Erdogan is in great health and poised to win his third term. The people are behind their president, and he will be back on his feet very shortly. This story has also produced a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 67% chance that Erdogan will abdicate the presidency if he loses the 2023 presidential election. In our next story, a BBC chairman resigns amid Boris Johnson's cronyism allegations. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Independent, Sky News, The Guardian, and ITV News. British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC Chairman Richard Sharp, resigned on Friday after an independent report claimed he didn't adequately disclose a potential conflict of interest in his role in securing a loan for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson prior to his appointment. The former banker helped facilitate an £800,000 loan to Johnson in 2020, having been approached by Canadian businessman and friend Sam Blythe over the matter. Sharp was appointed BBC chairman in February 2021. The investigation, led by King's counsel Adam Heppenstall, alleges that Sharp twice breached the code governing public appointments by not disclosing the extent of his involvement risking the perception that the BBC's chairman wasn't independent of the former prime minister and conservative party leader. The investigation also found that Johnson personally approved Sharp's appointment, and those who were running the independent recruitment process were told that Sharp was the only candidate that the government would support. A video released on Friday morning, Sharp, due to stay on until June, defended his position, saying any breaches were, quote, inadvertent and not material but said he decided to step down as the issue had become a distraction for the BBC and its good work. Sharp worked at Goldman Sachs in the early 2000s, where he was once the boss of current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Sharp also worked as an advisor to Sunak during the COVID pandemic and has previously been a Conservative Party donor. Thank you, Eric. We've got new statesmen providing us with a left narrative on this story. Sharp was right to have gone and should have left sooner. The story is yet another example of the toxic Johnson and Tory hierarchy attempting to jockey right-wing supporters within what should be independent selection processes. For the BBC to remain a trusted source, Sharp had to go. The Spectator gives us a right narrative. While this incident was undeniably an oversight on Sharp's part, it isn't a deliberate case of cronyism as portrayed by the media. Sharp has taken accountability for his error by stepping down. And that should be the end of this so-called scandal. I still don't really get what happened. Do you get what happened? He helped him get a loan? He helped him get it. And then he started working for the BBC? And then he started selling cars, and the cars started breaking down, and he would not own up to those lemons that he was selling people. And he ended up going to the Cayman Islands, and no one could find him. I missed that part with the cars. Where did that happen? Yeah, it's crazy. It's a crazy story. In fact, he's written a book about it, but he's he's got a uh, pen name. What's what's his so. pen name? His pen name is Al Capone. Are you are you being serious? And, uh, yeah, there's a whole series of books under this Al Capone pen name, and they've got and the, some of the stories are what? No, I made all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
okay. You had me for a sec. You had me. All right. You're very good. Continuing with news out of the UK, a recent poll shows that public support for the British monarchy is at a historic low. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the National Center for Social Research, The Guardian, and Independent. Britain's public support for a monarchy is the lowest it's ever been on record, according to a new poll released on Friday. According to the survey by the National Center for Social Research, only 3 in 10 Britons considered the monarchy very important, falling to 29% from 38% the previous year. The view that the monarchy is very important has reached the lowest percentage since data collection began in 1983, the center said in a press release accompanying the data. Meanwhile, a total of 45% of respondents said that either the monarchy should be abolished, was not at all important, or not very important. That's an increase in the number of people who gave one of the three responses when polled a year previously. According to the poll, a negative view of the monarchy was more common among younger people, while national events concerning the royal family, such as jubilees, marriages, and births, tend to have a positive outcome on perspectives. The survey was conducted ahead of the coronation of King Charles III, which will take place in London on May 6th. Those are the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Newsweek. The data is consistently showing that younger people in Britain no longer agree with the idea of a monarchy. What's more, they are bucking the trends and not becoming more conservative with age. As today's 25-year-olds become tomorrow's 45-year-olds, it spells serious dangers for King Charles's reign. I don't think Newsweek knows how age works. <laughs> That's followed up with a narrative B provided by Euronews. While more and more Britons are asking whether hereditary power is inappropriate in 2023, both political parties are firmly pro-monarchy, and there are dozens of other issues that people want to be tackled first. It's unlikely that there will be a change in the situation in the near future. The nerds of Metaculus are giving us their narrative as well for this story. They say there's a 60% chance that at least 1% of Great Britain will be under a monarchy by the year 2075. So I'm just trying to, un again, trying to unfold this uh, nerd narrative. 1% of, of Great Britain. So, I mean, there's tons of, you know, they're, they're Canada is part of Great Britain. What would only 1% of Great Britain constitute? Oh, that would be the city of Birmingham. You know where Ozzy's from, Birmingham. Birmingham. Uh, it's going to be monarchy, you know. You think that's just a one little portion of, of Birmingham, England? One little portion is going to be ruled by the king. Uh, Ozzy. <laughs> yeah. Ozzy, <laughs> Ozzy, the Prince of Darkness. That's what they mean by the, that's the monarchy. It's not. That's it's the not like it's right not there. the normal monarchy with kings and queens. No, it's just total turn no. on its head. That's and it. It's the Prince of Darkness. That's right. Is the that's it. That's the that's one. Per, the one that's the one percent. That is the one percenters yeah. in the UK. <laughs> Turning our attention back to the United States, as abortion bans fail in Nebraska and South Carolina. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, The Guardian, NPR Online News, CBS, and Associated Press. Two bills restricting abortion in South Carolina and Nebraska failed to advance through their state's respective Republican-dominated legislatures on Thursday. In Nebraska, a vote to end the debate so the bill could advance in the legislature failed by one vote. 
In South Carolina, senators rejected a bill that would have banned nearly all abortions in the state. The Nebraska proposal to ban abortion after around the sixth week of pregnancy is unlikely to move forward this year after the vote failed to break a filibuster. Meanwhile, the 22-21 to 21 vote on Thursday in South Carolina marks the third time a near-total abortion ban has failed in the state Republican-led chamber since the U.S. Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade last year. Abortion in South Carolina is currently legal through 22 weeks, a status that has drawn patients throughout the region, as abortion laws have become increasingly restrictive. The number of out-of-state patients has risen since the state Supreme Court struck down a 2021 law. 14 states have bans on abortion at all stages of pregnancy. Four states have bans throughout pregnancy where courts block enforcement. Eric, we're going to start off these narrative spins with a Democratic narrative provided by NPR. The failure of these two bills is a victory for women's rights campaigners nationwide. This gives hope that the restrictive policies that have been enacted towards reproductive rights could be turned around. Breitbart brings us a Republican narrative. The failure of these bills to advance is a frustrating setback. The vast majority of the constituents of these states support these bills aimed at protecting the most vulnerable, and the lawmakers should have followed suit and passed them. And there's a nerd narrative attached to this story that says there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And in our final story today, scientists have released the first direct image of a supermassive black hole. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Archive, Business Insider, Shine, CNN, and Space.com. On Wednesday, scientists released the first-ever image showing the violent events unfolding around black holes, including the launching point of a huge jet of high-energy particles shooting outward into space. The image, obtained using 16 telescopes at various locations on Earth, shows a supermassive black hole at the center of a relatively nearby galaxy called Messier 87, or M87, about 54 million light-years from Earth. A light year is equivalent to 9.5 trillion kilometers, or 5.9 million miles. The black hole, which is 6.5 billion times the size of Earth's sun, can be seen spewing out plasma jets. This latest observation may help scientists understand exactly how these jets are created and possibly unlock the mystery of how galaxies form. The image underlies for the first time the connection between the accretion flow, or material pulled inward, near the central supermassive black hole, and the origin of the jet, said Ru Sen Lu, astrophysicist and lead author of the research. Images could previously capture M87's black hole and the jet it emits, but not the two features together. This new image completes the picture by showing the region around the black hole and the jet at the same time, said study co-author Jay Young Kim. The size of the ring in the image which also shows what scientists call the shadow of the black hole, is about 50% larger compared to the first direct image of a black hole taken in 2019. Adam, thanks for the facts of this story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Harvard Gazette. Beyond the historic nature of this imaging, on par with Apollo 8's Earthrise, studying black holes is immensely important to understand how gravity and general relativity work under the most extreme conditions 
and the idea of the so-called one-way door from our universe. The discovery of these celestial giants, which comes over a century after Albert Einstein theorized about them, shows that humanity is one step closer to figuring out the cosmic mystery that has baffled physicists for decades. And there's a narrative B provided by Newsweek. Black holes are the hardest to see objects in the universe because they don't reflect or emit any light, which is why each new black hole discovery is historic and exciting. However, quantitative evidence of black holes is still missing, and scientists still haven't recorded two supermassive black holes merging or figured out how the process warps time. These discoveries could happen soon, but the global curiosity surrounding these questions won't be quenched until they do. And we have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. It says there's a 72% chance that gravitational waves from the merger of supermassive black holes will be detected by November of 2027. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, what do you think is on the other side of the black hole? I think there's probably a white hole. Oh, you think the other side is just is like a carbon copy universe? Uh, what's that called? Black and white film? Cro- uh, chroma color. Yeah, chroma color. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think it's just going to be an exact opposite. It'll be. A, it'll be a white. Well, hole. that'll throw. That'll throw the racists for a loop, won't it? <laughs> it sure will. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 29th, twenty twenty three. Each day, we use machine learning to read about five thousand articles from about one hundred newspapers and figure out. Out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. <laughs>